Angels have been known to soar and to fall, and their popularity has as well. When I last preached through Hebrews 15 years ago, angels were all the rage. One of the most popular shows on TV was Touched by an Angel, and Billy Graham's Angels, God's Secret Agents, was a bestseller. They were hot topics on talk shows and hot sellers in angel boutiques. When I first preached through Hebrews 30 years ago, I noted that the only time most of us thought about angels was when we dusted one off and put it on the top of our Christmas tree. Well, I'm not sure where they are today on the scale of popularity, but interest in angels seems to be back closer to that of the 80s. Still, over half of all Americans believe in angels, and I'm afraid that what was written of them in the 90s is still true. An article in Time magazine noted that for those who choke too easily on God and his rules, angels are a handy compromise, all fluff and meringue, kind, non-judgmental. And Christianity Today warned angels too easily provide a temptation for those who want a fix of spirituality without bothering with God himself. Well, to those who may have settled for angels, the writer of Hebrews declares that Jesus is far superior. He is much better than angels. Two weeks ago, in our introduction to the book of Hebrews, we saw seven ways Jesus is superior to the prophets. Today, we're going to see seven ways he's superior to angels. Now, the shift from prophets to angels comes in verse 4, which is actually a continuation of verse 3, but which also serves to introduce the new topic of angels. The author has just spoken of Jesus being seated at the right hand of God when he goes on to speak of Jesus having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Jesus is better. Thirteen times. We're told in Hebrews that Jesus is better. And he's better than angels, first of all, because he has inherited a more excellent name. That name, that designation is Son. And it is his alone. Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Jesus is superior to all others because he alone is the begotten son of God. Now, that word begotten is a bit confusing sometimes. It generally means to have been born to, 
It also simply means to be brought forth or caused to be or to be seen as. And since we know from the abundant testimony of Scripture that Jesus has always existed with the Father, we know he wasn't actually born of God. One did not come from the other. Both Father and Son are different aspects of the same divine being. Now, it is true that Jesus was miraculously born of a virgin into the world, And in that sense, he can certainly be considered the Son of God. But Jesus existed as God before he took on the form of a man and walked the face of the earth. He was with God and was God from the very beginning. So begotten refers more to the special name or designation that was given to Jesus than to an actual familial relationship with the Father. When God took on flesh, came to earth and dwelt among us, he was given the name Son of God to help us understand the unique connection Jesus has with the Father in heaven. He was called the only begotten Son of God, so we would know that he is connected to the Father as is no one else. No angel was ever given the name Son of God. Not even those who were sent to earth. They were still just angels. Now, as a group, they were referred to in Job and in Genesis 6 as sons of God, but no one angel was set apart and given the name Son of God. They were sons of God in that they had been created directly by God, and we actually become sons of God when we're adopted into the family of God. But only Jesus is the Son of God. And as such, he is the one all others worship, including the angels. Verse 6. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Now, it's not clear where the word again should be placed in this sentence. The NIV places it as in the preceding verse, simply as an introductory phrase, and again. The New American Standard, however, includes it as an integral part of the sentence. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world. Now, while the New American Standard is actually closer to the original Greek, as you're well aware. It is a bit confusing. It sounds as if it's talking about the second coming, when Jesus comes into the world again. Without entering into a textual debate, the point being made is the same. Whether the author was intending for us to think about the first coming, when angels sang at his birth, or the second coming, when the great multitude of heaven will sing hallelujah to him, the point is that angels of God worship the Son. In fact, we're told in Revelation that myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands of angels are even now worshiping the Lamb of God. Angels worship. 
the only begotten Son of God. They worship the firstborn. Now, again, as with begotten, so we must understand what is meant by firstborn as it applies to the Son of God. Obviously, it cannot mean Jesus was the first one to be born. As we've already noted, Jesus has always been. He is eternal. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. There was never a time when he did not exist, and there will never be a time when he ceases to exist. Calling Jesus the firstborn must therefore be a designation of priority and superiority. In fact, in addition to simply being referred to as the firstborn, he's also called the firstborn among many brethren, the firstborn of every creature, and the firstborn from the dead. And even though that last phrase does indicate that others will follow after him, also rising from the dead, they are all expressions of his superiority, not his sequence of birth. It's a way of saying he is above all others. And as such, Jesus will reign forever. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire, But of the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Now, as we're going to discover reading and studying through Hebrews, there are a lot of questions. It's a difficult book. And there's some disagreement here as to the primary point of this comparison. The passage quoted speaks of God making his angels win and his ministers a flame of fire. Some believe that is a reference to the primary functions of angels. The word angel itself actually means messenger. And some see in the picture of angels as winds the swiftness of God's angels. Gabriel, of course, is the most famous of God's messenger angels, having appeared to Daniel, Zacharias, the the father of John the Baptist, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. We have many other examples of angels serving as God's messengers, and they're no doubt as swift as the wind. Along the same line, a flame of fire speaks of judgment. And we know that angels were used and will be used as God's agents of judgment. The angel of death that passed over Egypt is a prime example of an angel rendering God's judgment in the past. And we know that at the end of the age, Jesus will send forth his angels to gather the unrepentant sinners and cast them into the furnace of fire. So they are certainly messengers and agents of God. And that is definitely a contrast to the one who sits upon the throne and rules forever. And that may well be the point of the writer here. But others think the point is the permanence of Jesus' reign. They see Jesus reigning forever in contrast to temporary angels that are turned into winds and flames of fire at the direction of Almighty God. And the Jewish rabbis did teach 
that God did just that. They even put these words into the mouth of an angel when Manoah, the father of Samson, asked him his name. I know not after what image I am made, for God changes us every hour. Why then dost thou ask after my name? Sometimes he makes us fire, other times wind, sometimes men, at other times angels. Now, that doesn't come from Scripture, but it does reflect the belief that God changes the form of his angels at will. And that may be supported by our text here. But either way, Jesus is superior. The one on the throne is vastly superior to messengers and agents. And the one who reigns forever is definitely superior to those who can be turned into wind or fire in the blink of an eye. Jesus is superior. And then we see that Jesus is by character superior to angels because Jesus never sinned. Verse 9. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy companions. Now, admittedly, it doesn't specifically state here that Jesus never sinned, but that some of the angels did. But we are told that since Jesus loved righteousness, he was anointed above his companions. And that would seem to indicate that his companions didn't all share his love of righteousness. Now, just who his companions are, we're not told. But since the whole point of these verses is to show Jesus to be superior to angels, we're safe to assume they were the ones who are in view as his companions. Now, that's not to say that he's one of them. Only that they are his celestial companions, those who constitute his heavenly court. The writer is simply showing another way Jesus is superior to angels. He's superior in moral character. He loves righteousness. And many of them did not. In Ezekiel 28, most believe we are given a picture of the fall of Satan, and there we get a good look at his character. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. And I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you. I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you 
among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified, and you will be no more. Apparently, Satan was the covering cherub, a special angel. An angel who sinned and then lost his place in heaven. And he's not the only angel to sin. Scripture makes it clear that Satan is in league with a host of demons, lesser angels, who apparently fell with him. But Revelation 12.4 speaks of one-third of the stars of heaven being swept away by the tail of the dragon and thrown to the earth. Most believe that it is a picture of one-third of the angels joining Satan in his rebellion against God. Whether that's actually the case or not, we know Jesus is by character superior to the angels because Jesus is totally without sin. He's also superior to angels, quite simply, because he created them. Verse 10. And thou, Lord, in the beginning, didst lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. In the first chapter of John's Gospel, we're told that Jesus is the creator of all things, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Paul emphatically reinforces that truth in Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. Jesus is not only the creator of the physical, visible universe, but also the invisible heavens, consisting of thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. That means Jesus created angels. Now, exactly when he did so, we're not told. Some believe he created them in the same time period he created the world. Others insist they were created earlier because in Job we read the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy at the creation of the world. But we really haven't been told when they were created. All we know for sure is that all things were created by the Son of God, and that includes the angels. And as creator of all things, he is vastly superior to the most exalted of heavenly beings and authorities. To reverence angels would be to worship the creature rather than the creator. And Romans tells us of the sin and perversion that comes from doing that. There's one other thing we should note in regard to the creation of angels, and that is quite simply they were created as angels. That means dead people don't become angels. And it's therefore wrong, wrong to speak of a deceased person as an angel in heaven. We will all one day be like angels in that there will no longer, we will no longer be bound to a physical body, but we will not become angels. Okay? 
Angels are an entirely separate order of created being. And Jesus created them just as he created us. Next, we see that Jesus is superior because Jesus is eternal. They will perish, but thou remainest. And they all will become old as a garment, and as a mantle thou wilt roll them up. As a garment they will also be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. Now they actually refers back to the earth and heavens. But since the purpose of these quotations is to show Jesus' superiority over angels, angels must be included in the works of Christ's hand that will perish. Now, admittedly, the Bible isn't clear about the status of angels in eternity. We do see them in Revelation around the throne and at the gates to the celestial city, but whether they'll remain there or not throughout eternity is not indicated. If the earlier reference to God making angels winds and fire referred to their transitory nature, then it would appear that they will not share all eternity with us. Jesus, however, will remain. He'll remain the same forever. For as our author will tell us in the 13th chapter, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today. Yes, and forever. Jesus is eternal. And last but not least... I didn't make this a seven-point sermon. The writer did, okay? Last but not least, Jesus is our Savior. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? After providing for our salvation, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. His work as Savior was done. But his work on our behalf is not done. And that is where angels come into play. They are ministering spirits set out from the throne of God to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. They are sent out for our sake. Not to save us in the sense that Jesus saves us from the eternal consequences of our sins, but to be of service to those of us who have been saved by Christ. And obviously, we're grateful for their ministry, even though we don't know what they're doing for us most of the time. In Psalm 34, 7, we read, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. When Elisha was in Dothan, the armies of Syria surrounded the city to take him, but couldn't. Because God sent horses and chariots of fire to surround him. And in Psalm 91, 
11 through 12, we read, For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, Satan quoted that to Jesus when tempting him to jump from the temple. But it wasn't a promise made only to the Messiah. It was a statement of what God does for all who dwell in the shelter of the Most High and abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And there's no indication that this ministry of angels has ceased. In fact, there's considerable evidence to the contrary. I would imagine most of us could tell of a time when we were spared a tragedy by a seemingly miraculous turn of events. Not only is it possible that angels had a hand in what happened, it's probable. I think we would all be amazed if our eyes were opened, as was Elisha's servant, to see the ministry of angels in our midst. That is not, however, to suggest that we should pray to them or worship them. Angels are merely ministering spirits sent out by God. They don't initiate ministry on our behalf. They follow orders. God is the one who cares for us, the one who answers our prayer. Angels are just one means he uses to answer our prayers and to protect us. And, as is popularly thought, he may even assign a specific angel to care for us. Now, Jesus spoke of personal angels guarding little ones in Matthew 18.10. And the Christians who had been praying for Peter's deliverance from prison thought it was his angel at the door after he'd been released from prison by an angel. So we may have a guardian angel, and we may cause some of them to work overtime. But we may have them. And if so, that should give us tremendous comfort and confidence in life. But to revere an angel is like revering the mailman who brings you good news. It didn't originate with him. He is simply the means through whom the blessing is delivered. Jesus is our Savior. He is the only one through whom salvation comes. Angels simply render service for the sake of those of us who have accepted Christ's gift of salvation. He is the one we worship. He is the one we open our hearts to and kneel before. He's the one whose birth the angels heralded as Savior, Christ the Lord. He alone is the light of the world. 
He's the one to whom we come for salvation. And if you've not done so, I invite you to do so today.